This week on Cold Steel. The thing that appealed to me the most about it was the whole idea of uh, a team, and it's a team approach to everything else that uh, is an ongoing component from the acute burn care to the chronic and the scar management and getting people back into work. It's very different than the other aspects of uh, surgery that I do, you know, the apnees and the gallbladders and things like that, where it's kind of like, okay, great, your appendix is in the bucket, see you later. Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. In this episode, we get all fired up about burn care. Dr. Sarvesh Logsetti is a burn surgeon at the University of Manitoba. In this episode, we talk about training pathways for burn surgeons, burn resuscitation, operative management of burns, and finally, about Dr. Logsetti's innovative research into burn wound management. First of all, we know how busy you are, and we say that to all our guests because it really is true, but we'd like to thank you so much for being on Cold Steel um, t- today. Um, you know, there's there's a couple of different styles of podcasts as as you uh, as you know from our chat, and we were hoping that this one could surround uh, the concept of of burn care in in a CME uh, uh, style. And there's certainly no one else, you know, without question, at least in Canada and probably North America, that comes to my mind uh, more quickly than um, than you when it comes to burn expertise. But before we launch into that, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners who maybe don't know you as well as we do, where you grew up, uh, what your training pathway was, how you ended up in Winnipeg, and and, and why a burn surgeon? Well, Chad, uh, thank you very much for the privilege of uh, being on the po- podcast. It was an honor. Um, it, uh, you know, your your accolades are, uh, you know, they're kind, but uh, there are a lot of people that I, uh, I they've been my mentors, and uh, any achievements I have is because of the the giants that have helped me along the way and still are uh, taking care of burns and know way more than I do. So uh, thank you for your your statement, though. Um, I started at Edmonton. I, was, uh, I grew up there and uh, I went to medical school at the University of Alberta and uh, wanted to uh, do general surgery. So I uh, ended up at the University of Toronto for general surgery and uh, always wanted to do some overseas work and uh, global general like global surgery and after i finished my general surgery residency i realized that uh, you know our current residency is not adequate to train people on how to become you know third world surgeons so i spent a year and uh, created a fellowship for myself where i was doing c-sections and some cranies and a bit of vascular surgery and uh, orthopedic surgery and learning how to do ORIFs and things like that and uh, one day i was walking down the hallway and ran into uh, a former uh, res- senior resident of mine uh, who had mentored me previously joel fish and um, i said hey joel what are you doing here and joel says oh i'm head of the burn unit so I said, burns, oh my God, that's uh, an area that I completely did not think about when I was planning my uh, year. 
and I said, hey, can I come work with you? And uh, Joel is an incredibly uh, enthusiastic and um, energetic individual who uh, just instilled in me a, a sense of wonder about burn care. And the thing that appealed to me the most about it was the whole idea of uh, a team. And it's a team approach to everything else that uh, is an ongoing component from the acute burn care to the chronic and the scar management and getting people back in to work. It's very different than the other aspects of uh, surgery that I do, you know, the appies and the gallbladders and things like that, where it's kind of like, okay, great, your appendix is in the bucket. See you later. We re- like, as Dr. Ball said, we really wanted to take this opportunity to go deep and uh, talking about burn care. And um, from a high level perspective, from a system level perspective, um, can you talk to us about who generally takes care of severe burns in Canada and, and how does that really compare to the U.S.? The model in Canada for the most part is uh, burns are taken care of by plastic surgeons with uh, critically injured burns taken care of in conjunction with intensivists. And uh, there's um, uh, mostly been uh, uh, the plastic surgeons who are involved there's in the recent past has been sort of an increase in the presence of general surgeons. I was uh, the first one in Canada as a general surgeon who uh, developed a career in burns. And uh, and now we have uh, two or three other individuals that are going down that pathway. And that stems from the American model of burn care, where about half of the burns are taken care of by plastic surgeons and the other half are taken care of by general surgeons who started off uh, with an interest in trauma and uh, ended up being uh, burn surgeons or general surgeons who, for various reasons of mentors and uh, exposure, decided they wanted to be a burn surgeon, period. Um, my sort of career in burn surgery was that uh, after I met Joel, I, he offered me a fellowship, a formal fellowship in the burn unit in Toronto. So I did a year there. And uh, while I was there, the folks in Seattle, which at that time was the mecca for, for burn care, uh, heard about me and said, hey, Sargash, do you want to come work with us for a year? And you know, when uh, you get called from up on high, you say yes. You don't think about uh, what it means afterwards. And uh, I have to say it was one of the best years of my life in terms of burn care. Incredible exposure. And uh, they do things uh, very differently in the States as a system than we do in Canada. So it was a great uh, eye-opener. It's it's so interesting to hear you describe that, uh, Saravesh. You know, my, my experience in the in the U.S. doing trauma and critical care as, as the first uh, a couple of fellowships was... Um, going to the American Burn Association meeting uh, one time, um, interacting with the head of the burn unit there, which was a gent named Walt Ingram, who was really, really an interesting guy. You know, he had been a an aerospace engineer at NASA for at Johnson Space Center for a dozen years before going back into medicine and then surgery and then burn care. And my my sort of overwhelming um, observation was that it seemed to be that these big American programs had and maybe it's typical, I don't know, they had one sort of person that really ate, slept, and, and lived that burn unit and, and provided, you know, exemplary and incredibly dedicated care. And that that really is um, part of it. You know, if you think about burn units in the States or in Canada, they tend to be uh, individual-driven. Uh, there are a lot of dedicated people that are part of it. Uh, there, it is a team. But uh, in terms of the burn surgeons, it tends to be um, like leaders. Like in Seattle at the time that I was there was uh, Dr. David Heimbach, who um, was, you know, one of the giants. Sure. Of burn. And yeah. uh, his partners were Lauren Engrave and uh, Nicole Gibran, 
who themselves are giants in burn care as well. But uh, it, it's just by virtue of the way things are, they uh, tend to get associated with that. I think it's a bit like that in the trauma world as well. You know, um, your time in Atlanta and so on, right? You think about the people, mm-hmm. think about uh, the mentors, because uh, they're the ones who kind of lay the path that everyone follows. Yeah, it's, it's so true. Service, what, what would your recommendation be for somebody, say, in Winnipeg or in Calgary who was in a general surgery residency uh, and wanted to pursue burn care in 2020 as a fellowship or as a career? What, what sort of career path should they take or what makes the most sense in, in the current day and age? I think in today's day and age, there would be two pathways that I would suggest if a general surgeon was interested in doing burns, one of which is to do critical care. And uh, that way you could approach burns from the aspect of being an intensivist who did burns, uh, which would be fantastic. Uh, And the other approach is to do it from the perspective of uh, being a trauma surgeon who does burns, where you end up incorporating the burns into your standard trauma care which uh, also I think is a reasonable uh, pattern of uh, practice. Okay. And uh, I think it's time for us to dive into a case scenario and really benefit from your expertise about burns. So I'll give you an example from someone that we had not too long ago when I was on call. Uh, We had a 35-year-old male who uh, was trying to stay warm in his trailer and uh, as something that probably happens in in Winnipeg as well as in Calgary, they, they often are using the, the gas heaters and unfortunately lit himself on fire and, w- and was severely burned. So I, we got a uh, page level one trauma, heart rate of 110, blood pressure 90 over 60, um, ETA 10 minutes. How do you approach that patient in the trauma bay and, and how do you uh, even mentally prepare the team? I think that the important thing to remember is that all of these individuals are still trauma and uh, they have to be assessed as a trauma using standard ATLS protocols. The uh, only change is that the burn changes how you're going to manage their fluids somewhat. And you know, one of the unique things about uh, our situation in Canada is that you can have this 35-year-old who's injured with a high-temperature thermal injury who may be hypothermic when they hit your door, right? It, it, it occurs anywhere, but more so when you have a minus 35 degree environment that you're working in and this person may have been doused in you know water at the environment and he may have been cold to start off with which is why he turned on the heater and was trying to heat up his environment in the first place and um so you have to make sure that you're not overly exposing them that you're assessing all the things that you normally would so start off with your airway uh, make sure that you know, there's a was is there a risk of inhalation injury? Should you be thinking about intubating this person early? What if they're in a closed space or a closed environment? Uh, what's their risk of carboxyhemoglobin? There's a, a lot that's written on things like cyanide and cyanide toxicity, but the reality is, is that there's little to no evidence that any of the cyanide toxicity kits are uh, of any value, that they change any outcomes. And uh, most of the times when you try to measure cyanide, most institutions take over a week to get the results back because they have to send them out to get them done. So there's literally no solid evidence that says that you should correct somebody's cyanide. I wanted to pick up on that that, that airway piece because um, in, in the few times that I've had burns come in uh, while I've uh, been on call, um, it's, it's certainly not always... Uh, straightforward 
decision as to should we intubate this patient or not. So what are the factors that go into your decision making um, about intubating a patient or, or evaluating them more closely, let's say with a bronchoscopy? A lot of it uh, comes from the history of uh, what the individual has and uh, a bit of the physical examination as well. If someone tells you they've had a flash injury, then most of the time you can get away with uh, at least observing them, doing a better examination, doing an oropharyngeal examination, especially if they're a smaller burn. The uh, the classic textbook answer, the exam answer of singed facial hairs and uh, face burns and things like that are, you know, they're very soft and haven't really held up over time, although there's there's still the correct exam answer. The... Um, the bigger issues are how much fluid are you going to give these individuals as you're resuscitating them. If there's someone that you can back off on the fluids, and the reality is is that you don't need to resuscitate a burn in the absence of other things going on if it's under 15 to 20 percent. Uh, you can get away with maintenance fluid and not have to give them any parkland or anything else. And if you can stay away from over resuscitating them and giving them a ton of fluid, sometimes they, they won't get that edema in their airway and they won't get that reaction. So you, like I say, you have a bit of time so you can try and figure them out. The big challenges are in our environment is the whole transport, right? If uh, somebody is over two to four hours away in terms of a transport, sometimes it's a better idea to get them intubated for safety because you don't know what's going to happen on the road and you don't know how they're going to respond um, than it is to sort of leave them and watch them. But if they're in an environment where you have an anesthetist in-house and you have people who are experienced in assessing things, then maybe you can you know, back off on uh, intubating them immediately. So how does that play out with you and your EMS? Are, you, uh, are they calling you and you're, you're giving them advice over the phone based on what they tell you? Or how does that decision play out? From an EMS perspective in the city, the, uh, they patch in with our eMERGE and we communicate with our eMERGE team fairly regularly. And I've given the eMERGE talks uh, at least two or three talks uh, over the last few years on plant managed burns and uh, with a focus on inhalation as part of it. And uh, we have, uh, you know, I'm available 24 7, regardless of whether I'm in the country or not. And people know that. So they'll call me if there's any questions. Does it matter to you? So, so first of all, you, yeah, I just want you to explain in case our, you know, we have junior residents or medical students listening to this. What what's a flash injury, and um, does it matter to you in terms of the mechanism of the burn? So, let's say, you know, is it different from electrical injury versus, um, you know, a house fire versus, as you say, a flash injury, um, and and does that play a role at all in how you initially manage these patients? So I, I joke that uh, I'm from Alberta, and as an Albertan, we like to barbecue, even in the middle of winter, and uh, oftentimes I'll be trying to barbecue something in the middle of winter, and you know those little starters that are on the barbecue, right? They don't, they're, they're probably invented by a burn surgeon, to be honest, because they don't work properly, and uh, you know, they'll be, you can just imagine me sitting there in dead of winter over this barbecue going click, 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 going, I wonder if the starter's working, sticking my head over it, right? And it goes, poof! And you get the flash burn, right? That's the flash of uh, flames that comes up. It can be high intensity. You get some facial burns. You get some singed nasal hair. But it's very quick. It's very short. Uh, it's very uh, instantaneous. So there's very little smoke. There's very little particles. There's very little bits of the chemicals and um, everything else, the partial uh, products of uh, partial combustion. So uh, from that perspective, 
it's uh, a flash burn is less likely to require intubation, even though the, the burn itself can look dramatic. And uh, those are people that have like peeling skin all over their face, and they may have corneal abrasions and things like that. As compared to uh, somebody who is asleep on their couch, and uh, uh, luckily we see this less and less because of uh, self-extinguishing cigarettes and so on, but fell asleep um, smoking, and their couch catches on fire, and they're like, <coughs> I couldn't find my door. <coughs> it was too smoky, <coughs> right? And those are the kind of people that even if they don't have any face burns, you're going to be, okay, you're going to be at risk. And especially if they have a bigger uh, burn from a total body surface area or TBSA perspective, if they're over 20 or 30%, then you get a synergistic effect on the edema that results in the airway and in the lungs from just the inhalation injury alone. So the burn and the inhalation injury add to each other. Um, and by doing that, you end up with a more likelihood of requiring intubation. I think that that segues perfectly to actually talking about how you assess the burns themselves. Um, again, recognizing that this uh, podcast is going to be listened to by uh, trainees of, at all levels, maybe you could start from just a basic um, you know, textbook kind of assessment of burns and how to assess um, total body surface area uh, injury. Sure. So let's start off with uh, the degrees of burns. So in the old language, you used to talk about first, second, and third degree burns. And everyone still uses that quite a bit because it's uh, around everywhere and patients seem to understand it and so on. But the, we're trying to move away from that. We're trying to use uh, superficial, uh, a partial thickness, and full thickness as, as the language because that actually tells you what's going on. A uh, superficial burn just involves the epidermis. By definition, doesn't go beyond the epidermis. It's painful. It's erythematous. There is no blistering at all. And if you sort of scrape your thumb across it, uh, the skin doesn't peel away or slough. It's all intact. That's like a bad sunburn. And those you don't include in your TBSA. You don't include them in your calculations. The next is uh, on the other side, the other extreme is a full thickness injury, which goes all the way through the epidermis, all the way through the dermis. And uh, that injury, if it's bigger than the size of roughly a toonie, is going to require some sort of excision and grafting or closure of some sort. And those are guys that should probably go to the burn unit you know, sooner rather than later. And they're at really high risk of infection because literally you've got a piece of dead tissue there you know, exposed to the bacteria, exposed to the environment with no blood supply. So, you know, as soon as bacteria get onto it, they'll just, it's media for them. And in between, you have the partial thickness injury. And the best way to think about the partial thickness injury is to divide it into two. There's a superficial partial thickness, which is kind of in the top third or so of the dermis. Um, this is an area that has minimal necrotic or dead tissue. So the risk of infection is relatively low. This is an area that usually heals as soon as that dead tissue kind of self-sloughs uh, and sort of self-debrides, uh, and the body will get rid of that over time, and the body will heal underneath that. And you get epithelial migration, the epidermal cells from the hair follicles or the sweat ducts, and will grow across that area. And that's the same as if you create a donor site when you're doing a split-thickness skin graft, and will heal... And to be honest, it, you don't, you could, we all put antimicrobial dressings on there, but you probably don't need to for these. The blood supply is fantastic. The amount of dead tissue is minimal. The risk of scarring is very, very low. 
it's hard to say what the pigmentation will do, but people don't get the thick raised hypertrophic scars that you can with a deeper partial thickness injury. The superficial partial thickness injuries, they have blistered, they're moist because there's good blood supply, there's good capillary leak that's going to happen. These are weepy, uh, they're erythematous, they're homogenous, and if you touch them gently, they will blanch because of the vascular dilatation that's occurring in that space. And then as the burn gets deeper, you get into the dermis, you get further and further, you have more dead tissue. So you have more and more burden of uh, area that can become infected. You have a risk of, um, you know, inflammatory response that if you allow it to heal and it takes more than two to three weeks, uh, the scar they're going to get is going to be worse than any scar I can create surgically for the most part. And those are the areas that you really do need a good topical antimicrobial on because there is enough of a burden of uh, dead tissue that's there that if you don't prevent the infection, you don't have the opportunity to give the person time to heal a little bit so you can figure out if they really do need the surgery or not. And those ones, they tend to be drier, they tend to be uh, more pale, and occasionally you'll see them where they'll look like they're bright red, but if you touch it, they're not, they don't blanch. And that's because the subdermal vascular plexus has been damaged by the heat. There's been a little bit of vascular leak that's occurred. And because it's in the interstitial space, it doesn't blanch, right? As compared to the vasodilatation that occurs in the superficial partial thickness injury. So those, those are the burns that you should uh, put them into topical antimicrobials, get them to a burn surgeon sooner so they can decide whether or not this person needs to have surgery sooner or not. Ravesh, I was hoping that we could uh, delve into a, a little bit about fluid resuscitation in, in burns. And I, I bring that up with the obvious uh, moniker that, you know, that's, full of, that's a pasture full of sacred cows and a lot of dogma. Um, where, for you, where does uh, fluid resuscitation, fluid maintenance, colloids versus non-colloids, and then, you know, of course, leading into, if it's managed poorly, abdominal compartment syndrome, um, where does that all fit for you? The, um, the fluids, you know, I'm lucky enough that I'm part of the ABLS, uh, the Advanced Burn Life Support Group at the American Burn Association, and I helped rewrite the ATLS chapter for both the 9th and 10th edition of the ATLS. So uh, I've um, had a lot of uh, in discussion with people who, again, are wiser and have some, and some great knowledge on this. And I think the reality is nobody has a, has a firm answer on any one individual, but there are a couple of things that are coming down the pipeline that I think are important to discuss. Um, the uh, big one is um, that we are trying to get everyone to back off on the fluids. Right now, um, we've been kind of sitting at uh, Parkland as being four cc's per kilogram per percent. And everyone's kind of like, okay, great. And there's been a what's been called a fluid creep by Basil Pruitt and others. And people are like, more fluid will be better. The, the reality is it isn't. And uh, the original Parkland was really described as two to four cc's per kilogram per percent. And the bigger the burn is, the presence of an inhalation injury, it uh, tends to ask to drive the fluids to the higher side versus a smaller burn, somebody who's you know nutritionally replete uh, without an inhalation injury tends to be on the drier side. So what we're really trying to encourage everyone to do is to start focusing more on what the urine output is doing and staying on the drier side of the urine output. So historically, we've talked about 0.5 to 1 cc per kilogram. We're even um, 
you know, without a lot of randomized trials or anything else, but the wind is stay tight to that 0.5 cc's per kilogram per hour in an adult, uh, even a little bit on the lower side of that, if, uh, if you can pull that off. Uh, for sure, don't chase hemoglobins, don't chase hematocrits. They, they will hemoconcentrate, they will, but you can't correct it. The more you crank fluid in there, the more it will leak out and you won't be able to correct that and you'll end up uh, causing a lot more trouble if you give them more. The, um, the big thing that uh, I would uh, advocate your learners to take a look for is that uh, Kevin Chung, who is an intensivist out of uh, San Antonio on the military uh, base there, which is uh, probably the world's best uh, center for learning uh, critical care burns in today's day and age in a lot of ways. Um, they wrote a paper and uh, sort of uh, justified, not justified, but uh, 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 they did a computer modeling of a number of different burns based on this, and they've come up with something called the rule of tens, where basically you take the size of the burn, multiply it by 10, and that's your percent, that's your CC rate per hour that you're going to start off and then titrate to the urine output. So this is different. When you say a rule of tens, you mean actually take the, the physical side. We're not talking about like the rule of nines where you, you're talking about 9% for an arm, 18% for a leg. This is, this is the actual size of the, the burn. Is that right? Correct. Gotcha. So you estimate your burn size to the nearest 10, right? and then you multiply it by 10, and that's your initial cc per hour rate. And then you uh, add 100 cc's per hour for every 10 kilograms over 80. And this is a, a pretty dramatic difference than than what the parkland formula would say in terms of fluid like that's like you know uh, a third of the amount of fluid potentially easily uh, that you'd be giving someone if, if you're if you're taking sticking to a 0.5 cc per kilogram times a tbsa well what they showed with their computer modeling is that it um, the parkland formula is is great as an overall formula but it isn't very accurate when you use it to predict an individual. It, it fits for groups. And uh, the rule of tens does the same thing. So they, it, they're pretty reasonable. And the rule of tens actually was able to map the urine output just as well as a park, Parkland did in terms of uh, how well it resuscitated individuals. So from that perspective, they, they're not that far off, to be honest. It's just an easier way of approaching it. And the other big thing that's um, coming in is that we're getting word of this uh, do half in the first eight hours and do the rest in the next 16 um, because the body doesn't sort of suddenly shut itself off uh, at eight hours from the inflammatory response or shift it. it, it it's this gradual change over time. So if you're paying attention to the urine output on an hourly basis, you you are more likely to be able to titrate that fluid in a in a more physiologic way than suddenly taking somebody from 800 cc's an hour to 400 cc's an hour and wondering why their blood pressure just tanked. So it really requires you to be much more diligent in terms of monitoring these patients, uh, not just you know setting a, a a rate and then you know letting it ride. You really have to just be on those patients and, and watch them every hour and see how they're doing. Yeah, and that's um, part of the biggest difference between you know burn surgeons versus I think non-burn surgeons, so to speak, taking care of burns, is that um, if I get a big burn that's in hospital, say 70 or 80 percent here, 
the nurses know that every two hours or three hours, I'll be calling them, you know, at two or three in the morning and going, hey, what's your urine output? What are we doing? You know, like, uh, how much are you giving them? And the other thing that's really important to remember in resuscitating burn patients is unless they're hypotensive, don't give them boluses. The boluses will just leak out. They have huge capillary leak. It's massive. And all you do is compound the edema and make it worse. And you won't be able to, to get them any better. So if, they're, if their urine output is okay, give them a vasopressor to try and maintain their blood pressure if you've given them enough fluid. Right, like it's it's that fine balance. You don't want to sit there and say, "Okay, great, you know, run the tank empty and try to give them a bunch of uh, uh, a bunch of uh, inotropes or vasoplegic agents." But at the same time, if the tank is full, don't keep trying to fill the tank to make their pressure better or to make their kidneys, you know, pee more than one cc per hour per kilogram per hour. Does it matter to you what kind of IV fluids uh, to use? As Dr. Ball was kind of asking or alluding to, does does it matter colloids, crystalloids, how, uh, you know, uh, some of the synthetic agents? How do, how do you think about that? Uh, so, so let's start off with the colloid versus crystalloid sort of issue. You know, I've I'm been around long enough that I remember when albumin was like the, the greatest thing since sliced bread. And then suddenly there are a couple of uh, reviews that came out and everyone said that albumin is the worst thing that you could ever give anybody. And there was one point where to give a unit of albumin, you had to get consent from, you know, the patient, their loved one, their lawyer, their next of kin and the Pope. <laughs> and uh, now we're kind of back to, well, you know, maybe it's not, you know, it's okay. Um, so the reality is in the first at least 12 hours, there's a lot of um, physiologic uh, evidence and animal studies that show that the capillary leak is so big and the, the capillary permeability is so large that the colloids that we have will just leak straight out. And there's no real point in giving it. The, having said that, there are some notable resuscitation formulas that exist where they start resuscitating with fresh frozen plasma or stored plasma or fresh plasma uh immediately and that's what their resuscitation is based on and you know they haven't necessarily shown that their outcomes are so much worse than anyone else's north american standard is to use ringer's lactate uh, because it's slightly less acidic than normal saline the um one of the major schreiner's burn units has uh, traditionally added an amp of bicarb to the ringer's lactate if they're doing large volume resuscitation uh, it serves two purposes, one of which is it makes it slightly hypernatremic and uh, also uh, gives you a little bit of better of a buffering capability and less acidic solution over time so that uh, you don't make the patient go into metabolic acidosis from your resuscitation. So if we're doing large volumes of fluid, I'll, I will generally resuscitate with Ringer's lactate with one amp of bicarb per liter. And after about 12 to 18 hours, and I have to be honest that uh, I started at 24 hours and I keep dropping my timeline. And now I'm at 12 hours. If I'm still giving them massive amounts of crystalloid, I will add in 25% albumin as an infusion, not as a bolus, but as an infusion. And um, when I first started doing that, I used to do this fancy calculation where I'd be like, okay, what's a Parkland and how much in, in excess of Parkland am I giving and divide it by five, blah, blah, blah. But uh, then I realized my pharmacist told me, well, the 
25% album and comes in a 100cc bottle. And after four hours, we have to throw it out. So I'm like, oh, okay, well, run it at 25ccs an hour then. Right? Why waste resources? They need a little bit of albumin. They need some narcotic load. So I run 25% at 25ccs an hour. I just love how something that we think is such a simple concept like IV fluids it still continues to be uh, something that evolves and, and uh, hopefully we continue to get better at it. And that's, I think that applies to burns and it, it clearly also applies to resuscitation and trauma with the whole uh, advent of whole blood, etc. So I, I think this is such a fascinating topic. Let's move on to, to talking about some other issues in the ICU. So if we go back to our patient uh, who, let's say, gets intubated, it's clear that he, he is critically ill. How are you thinking about this patient, let's say, early on in the first 24 hours in the ICU? Besides the fluids, what other kinds of issues are you are you thinking about? And then uh, beyond the first 24 hours, uh, what are the uh, key things that you think uh, need to happen um, in the in the intensive care unit? So I think the, uh, the first 24 hours is mainly the resuscitation, trying to make sure that, number one, uh, have you recognized the true extent of this person's burn injury? Are you, is your TBSA estimation accurate? Um, did your assessment of the depth uh, make sense? Is the person responding like they have an inhalation injury or not? And most of these individuals, as you've noticed uh, and identified earlier, are have other issues going on so um this 35 year old who was in a trailer was um and not to be prejudicial or anything else but was this a meth lab that blew up was this uh, a homicide and somebody had beat him up beforehand are there other things that we need to to be considering in this individual are there drugs are there alcohol um that kind of thing that need to to sort of be taken into account and uh, in any other, in any individual at all, is the other questions about what are their comorbid status? What's their comorbid status? Do they have diabetes? Do they have any other issues? Our uh, standard dressings uh, have migrated from being twice daily, which is what flamazine used to be, or even three times a day, to uh, we do polysporin and adaptic dressings Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, or we do Acticoat, which is a silver nanocrystalline dressing every um, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, or Monday and Thursday if they're healing really well and uh, don't need anything done. And um, from that perspective, uh, you know, it's then the other burn stuff. So make sure that uh, they get their nutrition started early. And uh, usually we just use NG tubes. You don't really need NJ for majority of individuals. And we don't use prophylactic antibiotics because, you know, if the skin's dead, there's no blood getting to it, so there's no antibiotic getting to it. It's the antibiotics got to come from the outside, and um, you know, make sure they've got their tetanus up to date, things along those lines. All burn patients are coagulopathic, so they all need to be on some sort of uh, anticoagulation prophylaxis. It's a little bit controversial about whether or not you should be doing BID or TID dosing, uh, partly because the volume of distribution in the burns is so high, and there's a lot of evidence from antibiotic studies and other medication studies that their volume is is anywhere up to twice what an other individual's volume of distribution is. So I don't think it's unreasonable to give your heparin or daltoparin twice a day if that's what you want to do. Or sorry, three times a day if that's uh, what you want to do. 
Sarvesh, you, you've always been a really innovative thinker and an innovative guy overall. And I'm, I'm just curious, um, without blowing any of your patents or any of your uh, your non-public work, where, you know, the, the topic of, of burn coverings or burn dressings, where, where is that going in the future for us all? Um, I think there's a, a couple of different things um, to, to chat about from that perspective. Um, and this is, you know, really just my opinion, but... The, the standard of burn cure today is early debridement uh, in some form or the other. And um, in a big burn, if it's a small burn, you could wait weeks. You know, that's fine. It doesn't matter. But in a big burn, so anything over 20 or 30%, they really should hit the operating room within about 72 hours before the inflammatory response really starts to kick in and before there's a risk of infection or anything else. And the, the idea is to get rid of that burn. So the first innovation that I see coming down the pipeline in the next five to 10 years is going to be the enzymatic or non-surgical debridement of wounds. And um, there's a, a couple of different products that are out there, one of which is based on uh, pineapple uh, enzymes, uh, another one which is a surfactant, uh, and there's a couple of other uh, interesting ones that are in evolution. And I, I think that really what's going to happen is that people are going to come in the door the first dressing change that's done in the burn unit is that one of these enzymatic substances is going to get put on their wound. They're, uh, you're going to watch them for two or three days to see how much of that just debrides and lifts off. And if it debrides all the way down to fat, then you know that this person needs a skin graft. If it debrides down to a little bit of dermis, um, and then you, you, know, you might say, okay, let's wait and see what they do. And uh, that's going to be a huge game changer because instead of rushing everybody to the OR to get rid of this dead skin and the inflammatory response, you're going to put this uh, product on them. They're going to auto debride through this uh, chemical debridement or enzymatic debridement. And uh, I think that the inflammatory response will be lower. Their overall scarring will be lower. The amount of surgery they need will be lower. I think that those are huge, huge factors. And then um, the other part that will go hand in hand, and this is, you know, as, as you alluded to, uh, uh, Chad, uh, you know, I'm working in a lab with a, a very brilliant uh, scientist by the name of Song Lu, and uh, we've been working on trying to create new burn dressings. And one of the things we're trying to do is come up with a dressing that is uh, both uh, a responsive dressing, so it stays inert until the bacteria are present, and then as the bacteria start to grow and start to release some of the enzymes that are specific to those bacteria, it will start to break the bonds in the dressing down. And breaking those bonds will cause the dressing to release antimicrobials, which will kill the bacteria. So from that perspective, you can leave the dressing on for weeks and you don't need to look at it. And the other thing is that by uh, within these uh, dressings, we uh, hope to have uh, incorporated a color-changing uh, indicator so that uh, what happens is that the dressing will turn red or green or whatever color and once it changes that color you know that that area of the dressing has a growth of bacteria underneath it and so you can cut out that part of the dressing you can take a look at that area if you need be you can do whatever management you need on that area of the wound and replace the dressing and there's no need to take off the rest of the dressing you can uh, just leave the rest of it intact until the, the body itself heals up and um, I think that, uh, you know, the combinations of things along those lines with uh, the enzymatic derivement and so on will change the way we approach uh, burn wounds, especially partial thickness ones. That is so cool. And uh, I think uh, we need to watch this space closely. And I'm so excited to, 
to see where all that uh, research goes. I, I would like to, t to touch briefly on the operative management of these uh, burns, um, especially because I think myself included, a, a lot of general surgery residents or, 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 or residents not in, let's say, not in plastic surgery may not have the same kind of exposure to burn surgery. What are the principles of uh, do, performing these operations uh, and, and what, 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 what are sort of the goals uh, in the operating room? The, I think the, the main principle that somebody should adhere to is uh, don't take away more than you need to in terms of the removal of the, the dead skin, but take away everything you do need to take away. So um, excising, you know, partial thickness burn and still leaving a layer of dead tissue behind and trying to skin graft on that is about as useful as skin grafting onto a table. Uh, the skin graft's not going to be, not going to vascularize. You're going to end up losing it. You're going to end up creating a donor on this person that they didn't need and you'll make them sicker for no reason. Um, so it's that fine balance between taking too much where you're making a, a wound that is going to have a worse scar and is going to have worse problems or not taking enough and end up having to do the surgery again. And that's, um, that's something that you have to be cautious about and uh, trying to figure out where you're going to go with those. I have to honestly say that even at this time in my career, I still uh, have times where I'm like, I don't really know what the right depth on this individual is. And uh, that's why I'm excited about these enzymatic debridements and uh, uh, non-surgical debridements because, you know, they're, they're going to help with that a lot. The... Um, Second part of it is uh, making sure that when you are harvesting your skin or, or putting it in place that you're, you're thinking about how the patient's going to move, how the scars are going to form, uh, thinking about anatomical lines, and uh, trying not to put seams uh, across a joint or in a way where if it does contract and all graft seams contract, unfortunately, um, that you don't create a band, you know, in the antecubital region, for example, or behind someone's knee. So they're going to have trouble, you know, extending those joints. And then um, the last thing is to, to think about, uh, you know, what are the things that are going to impede your ability for that skin graft to heal? You know, does this person need, um, you know, better nutrition? And should you give them better nutrition before you take them to surgery? I, uh, as I get older and, you know, get a little bit more gray hairs, I start. I feel that a lot of our patients um, have poor nutritional status coming into surgery, and um, you know you can't expect people to uh, you know make uh, sticky proteins, as uh, Stuart Hamilton would say. Uh, if um, you uh, if they don't have any proteins to start off with, so trying to optimize nutrition uh, before surgery and even after surgery or are important parts of it, trying to make sure that you uh, um, minimize shear and uh, trying to make sure that, uh, you know, you're not taking unnecessary uh, steps in managing the, the care of the patient. And uh, for me, part of that is trying to minimize things like um, blood loss. Uh, we do a lot of uh, subcutaneous tumescence with epinephrine solution. Um, a while back, I wrote a paper on phenylephrine as an alternative. Uh, it has less central effects, so uh, you know it's not a, an unreasonable thing to do, and um, uh, it's important to sort of 
uh, keep track of uh, like the amount of fluid and the temperature that's going on with the patients during the surgery. It's not as simple as, you know, letting your anesthetist do their thing and you're kind of operating. It's the same way that uh, if you have a major trauma, you should be communicating with your anesthetist at all times. You know, what's the, what's the pH in this patient? Uh, how are they doing? What's their clotting like? What's, uh, you know, what's our blood pressure? Do you think that we have time to do some more stuff or should we be backing off and just doing damage control? It's, it's an ongoing communication. Um, I think that the, the last part of this that I wanted to touch on is sort of the reconstructive side of this. And I, I think part of that is talking about skin grafts. When, when would you consider doing skin grafts? And in general, again, principles of, of, of using skin grafts. And then beyond that, what is uh, the rehabilitation um, look like for these patients in terms of getting them back to a functional status uh, where they can leave the hospital and, and try to return back to their former um, uh, quality of life and, and function? I'd, I'd like to say that, uh, you know, while we have a pretty good track record um, of uh, getting people back to their level of function that they had before, it's, um, you know, not always 100%. Uh, for sure, but most people should be able to do what they were doing prior to the burn injury uh, from a physical perspective. The, um, there are uh, some individuals who, for reasons I still don't understand, scar uh, more aggressively. Um, and just the, no matter what we do, no matter what we try, they're very compliant, but their range of motion is, sucks. They've got horrible uh, hypertrophic scars and you know, it's, it's a huge challenge for, for those individuals. But the majority of individuals, uh, I think that we can uh, do pretty well. And especially if you have a smaller burn uh, and we can put some sheet graft instead of mesh graft down, uh, a lot of the time, some of those areas are not very noticeable. And uh, I've grafted a few people's hands where unless you look closely, you wouldn't know that their hands are grafted. Um, you know, and this is the co uh, the concept of burns as a team um, that takes another step entirely. In hospital, without the dietitians, the nurses, the uh, you know the social workers to help everybody, and so on, we you know that it'd be a horrible time for the burn survivors. And but getting home, it's the OTs, the PTs, getting them back into their work, and having those dedicated individuals who know what to look for and aren't afraid to to push the patients where needed and know where to back off, where they need some uh, time to, to recuperate. It's, those are the things that are, uh, I think, uh, what drew me to this in the first place, is the people that are dedicated to this. The um, other parts of it that uh, we're trying to explore are understanding how to get people back to work and uh, how to get people uh, re-engaged with their workplace. And um, I have to say that one of my frustrations is the concept that uh, you have to be 100% before you can go back to work. Um, you know, I understand why that is from a safety perspective and everything else, but people don't get back to 100% if they're sitting around at home. It just doesn't happen. That's like telling a hockey player that's, you know, an NHL-level hockey player that he's going to go back to being an NHL-level hockey player by uh, staying at home. You know, people need to be engaged. One of the questions that we ask all of our guests um, when they come on the podcast is, if you were able to go back and give yourself advice as a trainee, uh, knowing what you know now, what would that advice be, whether it's about looking after burn care 
uh, or burn patients specifically, or just generally some advice about uh, your career and training? That's um, a great question. And I think that uh, the advice that I would give myself is uh, something that uh, I think Chad and I have discussed a few times, and that's uh, whatever you do, keep it fun. Because the moment it stops being fun, it becomes work. And work isn't fun. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.